I'm so great to be back picking up our study, Bible study through the book of Jeremiah. It was somewhere before Thanksgiving, I think, that we, I think we had one study in December, that's it. But uh, if you have your Bibles uh, tonight, or if you need a Bible, just raise your hand and Richard will bring you one. Turn to Jeremiah chapter 13 tonight. And we should get through 13, 14, and 15. That's the goal. I think we should do that pretty easily, but Jeremiah chapter 13 is where we'll begin. I do have a little bit of a stiff neck tonight, and so if I don't look over to my left while I'm teaching, take no offense, or to my right while I'm teaching, I may do this. Let's pray. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the night tonight. Lord, what a joy it is to be able to come into your presence with hearts of praise and thanksgiving. Lord, you are worthy of all of our praise, all of our worship. And Lord, just the joy it is to continue to worship you through the study of your word. Lord, knowing that uh, your Holy Spirit will speak to our hearts through your word. In some area of our lives, Lord, as we listen to you and to your word tonight. We know, Lord, you have something for each one of us tonight. Thank you for that, Lord. Thank you for just the power of your spirit working in and through our lives, through your word. Pray now that you'd bless our time together, Lord, for the kids downstairs, that you minister to them through your word. Bless them and the teachers downstairs as well. We give you all the glory, honor, and praise. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Jeremiah had a tough, tough job. He was called by God to give an unpopular message to an ungrateful and unrepentful people. And when his pleadings to turn to God wanted heeded, God had him pronounce judgment on his people and made him an object of intense persecution. I mean, Jeremiah made huge sacrifices with very few tangible results. His stand for God often required him to stand alone where no one stood with him. It's hard to imagine giving a, a man, God giving a man a more difficult assignment than, than he gave the prophet Jeremiah. And I think if God really reserves uh, his most demanding task for his strongest and most spiritual servants than Jeremiah, man, he ranks way up there. Uh, there. I mean, he's a, a man to be admired. Well, we pick it up now in chapter 13, verses 1 and 2. We read, Thus the Lord said to me, Go and get yourself a linen sash, and put it around your waist, but do not put it in water. So I got a sash according to the word of the Lord and put it around my waist. It's often said a picture is worth is better than a thousand words. And, and often in the Old Testament, God would speak through or to his people rather through pictures, through object lessons, especially when people would not listen to conventional methods. God would command his, his prophet to act in a certain way, almost like a, like a, like a parable. It was a visual aid to wake up God's people. And sometimes he would use some of the strangest behaviors to teach a spiritual truth or a spiritual lesson. Think about Isaiah. Walk naked and barefoot for three years as a sign of judgment against Egypt and, and, and Ethiopia. He spoke to the nations about the bare facts, the naked truth. Ezekiel was called by God to lie on his left side for 390 days and then on his right side for 40 days. Man. Or you look at Hosea was told to go and, and marry a prostitute. 
Well, here, Jeremiah was told to go and get yourself a linen sash. Now, the sash was an, an article of clothing that goes by really different names in various Bible translations. You know, you, the New International Version calls it a linen belt. New American Standard calls it a linen waistband. The New Revised Standard Bible calls it a linen loincloth. New English Bible calls it an apron. The King James Version calls it a linen girdle. Some have even called it underwear, you know. I think it's best understood as a long linen sash about 8 to 10 inches wide that you would wrap around your waist. The, the point is, it was supposed to be uh, worn very close to the body. The commentators differ about what it's meant by do not put it in water. It seems to me that the Lord is just telling Jeremiah to not wash it, just wear it and keep wearing it day after day after day. And the, and the sash really represented the intimacy and the fellowship that the nation of Judah enjoyed with God. But the longer that Jeremiah wore it, the dirtier it got until one day. Look what the Lord says now in verse 3. And the word of the Lord came to me the second time saying, Take the sash that you acquired, which is around your waist, and arise. Go to the Euphrates and hide it there in a hole in the rock. So I went and hid it by the Euphrates as the Lord commanded me. Now it came to pass after many days that the Lord said to me, Arise, go to the Euphrates, and take from there the sash which I commanded you to hide. Pew. Then I went to the Euphrates and dug, and I took the sash from the place where I'd hidden it, and there was the sash ruined. It was profitable for nothing. I mean, you can imagine the scene. You take this linen girdle, this linen sash, you put it, you know, under a rock, and you go away, and you come back weeks later, if not months, you dig it up, and it's pretty disgusting. You know, bugs have gotten in it, maybe eaten holes in it. The thing is filthy and smelly. It's good for nothing. What's the point? Well, we're told, look at verse 8. Then the word of the Lord came to me saying, Thus says the Lord, in this manner I will ruin the pride of Judah and the great pride of Jerusalem. This evil people who refuse to hear my words, who follow the dictates of their hearts and walk after other gods to serve them and worship them, shall be just like this sash which is profitable for nothing. For as the sash clings to the waist of a man, so I have caused the whole house of Israel and the whole house of Judah to cling to me, says the Lord, that they may become my people for renown, for praise, and for glory. But they would not hear. See, through Jeremiah, God pictured himself as this man wearing this beautiful linen sash. And this, this sash was supposed to be this outstanding fashion accessory. So one thing that adorned him, that you would look at him and go, Wow, look how beautiful that is. Israel and Judah were to be that sash. So when the other nations would look uh, at them, they would see the beauty and the holiness and the grace and the representation of the nature and the character of God. But because of their sin, however, they looked more and more like a sash that was spoiled, a people that were misrepresenting God. I mean, what would be the result of, of the sash being soiled and dirty? It was taken away by its owner to a river, hidden in a rock there for further decay until it, it, you know, it was no good as a sash anymore. And in the same way, God would hide his people by the rivers of Babylon so they would recognize and repent of their sin. They would be taken into captivity so they would turn from their sin and turn back to God. In fact, several times in this section, the Lord points to the the pride of his people, that sinful, selfish pride as the root of their problem. And pride does stink. It's been said, pride makes everyone sick except the one who has it. It's like if you're working in a restaurant where they're cooking something really stinky and smelly, and after you've been there for a while, you don't smell that odor anymore until you get home and your wife goes, ooh, what were you cooking? 
Now, pride stinks like that old mop that you left sitting in dirty water, that, that dish rag that you left in the sink, you know, that you wiped spilled milk over the counter with, or, you know, or the trash that needed to go out. You know, enough sticky illustrations, stinky illustrations, right? It just stinks. Isaiah 64, 6 says, But we are all like an unclean thing, and all of our righteousness are like filthy rags. We all fade as a leaf, and our iniquities like the wind have taken us away. Bible tells us that even the good things that we attempt to do when motivated by fleshly pride carries an odor. They're like the stench of filthy rags in the nostrils of God. You know, I think about pride and, and so often we think of, you know, you know, out in the workforce or out, you know, among, you know, people that you come around or think situations and, and, and pride. But, but I think a lot of times, especially for us guys, we have a hard time with pride in our homes. You know, I know what, you know, my wife says, hey, we need to pray. Immediately I go, who are you to tell me we need to pray? I'll tell you when you need to pray. We need to pray, you know. <laughs> it's that pride that, that, that you know, sneak, sneaks in. And, 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 and it's just, you know, it's one of those things where, you know, I'm not that prideful outside. But man, at home and, and our wives, we're closest to the people that we know. Sometimes it rears its, its stinky head. You know, pride is so subtle that even if we aren't careful, we can actually be proud of our humility. When that happens, our, you know, our goodness becomes badness, our virtues become a vice. We can easily become like the Sunday school teacher who, having told the story of the Pharisees and the publicans, said, Children, let's bow our heads and thank God that we're not like that Pharisee. D.L. Moody put it this way when he said, I believe that the moment our hearts are emptied of pride, selfishness, and everything that is contrary to God's law, the Holy Spirit will fill every corner of our hearts. I like that. Here we read that God would allow Judah to be taken captive. He says here to ruin the pride of Judah and the great pride of Jerusalem. He goes on in verse 12. Therefore you shall speak to them this word. Thus says the Lord God of Israel. Every bottle shall be filled with wine. And they will say to you, do we not certainly know that every bottle will be filled with wine? Uh, the expression really meant it's all going to turn out okay in the end. We know it. In fact, that's what the false prophets were saying. Judgment's not going to come. Everything's going to be just fine. The truth is, God would not would fill them not with joy, but with drunkenness. He, he'll bring on them a spiritual stupor because of their sin. Verse 13. Then you shall say to them, Thus says the Lord, Behold, I will fill all the inhabitants of this land, even the kings who sit on David's throne, the priests, the prophets, and all the inhabitants of Jerusalem with drunkenness. And I will dash them one against another, even the fathers and the sons together, says the Lord. I will not pity nor spare nor have mercy, but will destroy them. So God's going to judge kings, princes, priests, prophets, even the people of Judah. These are, these are menacing words. God is saying, I'm not going to have any no mercy. Now Jeremiah's heart really comes out. Look at verse 15. He says, Hear and give ear. Do not be proud, for the Lord has spoken. Give glory to the Lord your God before He causes darkness and before your feet stumble on the dark mountains and while you are looking for light. He turns it into the shadow of death and make it, makes it dense darkness. But if you will not hear it, my soul will weep in secret for your pride. My eyes will weep bitterly and run down with tears because the Lord's flock has been taken captive. Now Jeremiah, we know, has been known as a weeping prophet. And this is one of the references to him weeping. God has given this message uh, of warning to them. And Jeremiah is pleading with them, hear and give ear. Do not be proud. The Lord has spoken. But then he goes on 
what they're going to do. He says, if you will not hear, my soul will weep in, in the secret for your pride. My eyes will weep bitterly and run down with tears. You know, it's interesting. When you look back over the years and, and look at some of the, the hell and fire brimstone preachers that were out there, I, I think we need more today. I don't think there's any anymore, but I think we need to bring some back. But when you look at them and you hear some of their messages, you'd think, well, they're just angry at everything. You know, judgment is coming. You better repent. It's just it's, it's anger. But here with Jeremiah, here he's pronouncing this horrible judgment of God, but he's weeping. He's in tears. He's not smiling with righteous anger. Boy, God's going to get you and I can hardly wait. He, he's weeping over the condition of the people's hearts because they're not going to respond to the message of God. And he's, he's crying out, please, in verse 16, he says, Give glory to the Lord your God because he causes darkness and before your feet stumble on the dark mountains and while you're looking for light, he turns it into the shadow of death and makes, and makes it dense darkness. Turn back to God before darkness comes. And God does promise darkness to cover the Jews. They rejected his light so they, so they taste a dense darkness. You know, there's, there's three different types of darkness spoken of in Scripture. First, there's a, a natural darkness. Ephesians 4.18 describes an inherent darkness that comes from not knowing Christ. It says, having their understanding darkened, being alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them, because of the blindness of their heart. All men are born in sin, and apart from God, they're in, a dark, they're in the dark from the start. Secondly, there's a deliberate darkness. John 3.19 Jesus says, and this is a condemnation that is light, that light has come into the world and men love darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. That's a darkness that, that men have chosen. The light of God exposes our sin and makes us uncomfortable. Thus sinful men prefer the darkness. And the third darkness is a judicial darkness. This is a darkness that, that Jeremiah is referring to here. God sentences a rebellious people to, to stumble into spiritual darkness. They've rejected the light, so God proclaims the spiritual darkness is coming. Now we know that it's going to happen in the end times. We know during the Great Tribulation, Second Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 11 and 12, it says, And for this reason God will send them strong delusion that they should believe a lie, that they all may be condemned who do not believe the truth but had pleasure in unrighteousness. They chose darkness rather than light, so God imposes a darkness. Well, Jeremiah goes on, look at verse 18. Say to the king and the queen mother, humble yourselves, sit down, for your rule shall collapse the crown of your glory. Now, this was a prophecy. Both King Jehoiakim and his mother Nehushta would, in fact, be carried off as captives, according to 2 Kings 24.12. Implied here was their rule was bringing them glory rather than bringing glory to the Lord. So Jeremiah says, humble yourself because it won't be long before you're going to be humbled. Now, Jesus put it this way in Luke 20, 18, Whoever falls on the stone will be broken, but to whomever it falls, it will grind into powder. James tells us in James 4, 10, Humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord, and He will lift you up. Again, just speaking of the pride that they had and the humility that they should have had in their lives. Verse 19, The city of the south shall be shut up, and no one shall open them. Judah shall be carried away captive. All of it, it shall be wholly carried away captive. God telling them exactly what's going to happen. He makes it very clear what he's about to do. Verse 20. He says, Lift up your eyes and see those who come from the north. Where is the flock that was given to you? Your beautiful sheep. What will you say when he punishes you? For you have taught them to be chieftains and to be head over you. 
Will not pangs cease you like a woman in labor? And if you say in your heart, Why have these things come upon me? For the greatness of your iniquity, your skirts have been uncovered. Your heels made bare. Can the Ethiopian change his skin or the leopard in spots? Then may you also do good who are accustomed to do evil. Man cannot change his nature. Only God can change a man's nature by and through the Holy Spirit working in and and through his life. A leper can't change his spots. You are what you are by nature. And if you have not received Jesus Christ, you're a sinner by nature. You can't be righteous even though you try. It's impossible. You need a new nature. It's like you know taking a pig out of the pig pen, giving him a bath, putting on some deodorant underneath his little pig legs. You know, I don't know. It's spraying with perfume. Even put a bow around his neck. But let him go outside and immediately he will go right back to the mud and roll all over in it and just get filthy all over again. That's his, it's an, his environment. That's what he loves. That's his nature. He loves wallowing in the mud. And that's the nature of some people. You can clean them up, give them a new attitude. You can say, oh, it's their environment. Let's change your environment and, and clean you up. And then you're going to be just fine. But they're not fine. They go right back to the same life of crime and, and drugs and, and sexual immorality. It's their nature. They need a change of nature. That's why Jesus said, don't be surprised when I say don't marvel. And I say, you must be born again. That's the answer. A change of nature. That's what the Spirit of God accomplishes in my life. He gives me a whole new nature. A nature that goes after Him. Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 5.17, Therefore, if any man be in Christ, he's a new creation. All things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. The Jews were to be separate from the surrounding nations in order to express the wonder and the glory of the Lord. And instead, they just you know, adopted the disgusting practices of the surrounding nations. And in so doing, they put themselves in submission to those people and the practices because whomever you yield yourself to, that's who you become a slave to. So when the Lord says in verse 21, like a woman in labor... Know that it's a common expression in the Old Testament to describe an an unavoidable pain and suffering of God's judgment. It's going to come upon you. It's a warning to repent before it's too late. To stop the direction you're going before you reap the consequences of sin. Paul talks about that when he warns of God's judgment coming upon the earth during the Great Tribulation again in 1 Thessalonians 5, 1-3. He says, But concerning the times and the seasons, brethren, you have no need that I should write to you, For you yourselves know perfectly that the day of the Lord so comes as a thief in the night. For when they say peace and safety, then sudden destruction comes upon them as labor pays upon a pregnant woman and they shall not escape. In other words, once labor starts, that baby's coming. Once God's judgment starts, there's no stopping it. The reason, look at verse 24. He says, Therefore I will scatter them like stubble that passes away by the wind of the wilderness. This is your lot. The portion of your measure for me, says the Lord, because you have forgotten me and trusted in falsehoods. Therefore, I will uncover your skirts over your face that your shame may appear. I have seen your adulteries and your lustful names, the lewdness of your harlotry, your abominations on the hills and the fields. Woe to you, O Jerusalem. Will you not, will you still not be made clean? The word stubble there was a broken straw separated from the wheat after the ox and had trampled the grain out. Sometimes it was burned as useless, you know, at other times it was left for the wind to blow it away. Uh, but the point is there, rather than bearing fruit for the Lord, their lives are really stubble. And they've forgotten the Lord and they trusted in their own lies and, and, and God says it's all going to be uncovered. 
It's going to be revealed. Your hearts are going to be revealed. God is sending His judgment. I'm going to uncover your skirts over your face that your shame may, may appear. You get the picture. It's pretty embarrassing. The, the pride here is thinking your sin won't be found out. That you're going to get away with it. Even if it isn't exposed, think of what sin does to your relationship with the Lord. God mercifully said to them, will you still not be made clean? In verse 27. I mean, they, they were caught and condemned by their spiritual adultery. And here God was urging them to repent. Judah really is a woman here caught in adultery, like the woman caught in adultery in the Gospel of John, who was brought to Jesus. Forgiveness and restoration is always preferable, always possible. Now, this chapter began with Jeremiah putting on the Lord's sash, representing our relationship with the Lord. And I have to ask ourselves, you know, how does our sash of the Lord look, you know, this evening? Have we dirtied it? Are you sore from having picked up so much filth from the world? Are you just as beautiful and fashionable as when, you know, He first puts you on? I'm so thankful that the Lord cleanses us of all of our unrighteousness as we confess to Him our sin, that we can stay clean as we stay close to Him. Romans thirteen fourteen. But put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provisions for the flesh to fulfill its lusts. Okay, chapter 14 begins a new section. Look at verse 1. The word of the Lord that came to Jeremiah concerning the droughts. Now, when, when the people obeyed God, he would send rain. When they disobeyed God, he would close up the heavens. Using drought conditions was the Lord's way to get his people's attention, to humble them and bring them back to himself. Verse 2, Judah mourns and her gates languish. They mourn for the land and the cry of Jerusalem, and the cry of Jerusalem has gone up. Their nobles have sent their lads for water. They went to the, to the cisterns and found no water. They returned with their vessels empty. They were ashamed and confounded and covered their heads. Because the ground is parched, for there was no rain in the land. The plowmen were ashamed and covered their heads. Yes, the deer also gave birth in the field, but left because there was no grass. And the wild donkeys stood in the desolate heights. They sniffed at the wind like jackals. Their eyes fell because there was no grass. See, as a result of Judah's backsliding, turning away from God, there's no fruit. There's no life. It's all dried up. The ground is parched. There's no rain in the land. Jesus put it this way in John seven thirty seven and 38. If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me, as the scriptures have said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. There's life in Jesus' name. There's life in Jesus. There's fruit through the living water of the Holy Spirit overflowing in our lives. But when we turn our back on Him, when we choose to live in the flesh... There's no fruit. There's no, it's only dryness. Parched, parched lives. Verse 7. O Lord, though our iniquities testify against us, do it for your namesake. For our backslidings are many. We have sinned against you. See, they weren't uh, just guilty of one-time backsliding. A little backsliding here and there. No, their backsliding, it says, were many. They were living in a backslidden state. And so, Jeremiah, he's, he's interceding for the people here. I mean, notice the pronoun he uses. He doesn't say their backsliding. He says, but our backslidings. It's not they, it's we. Oh, oh Lord, we have done this. He's including himself in. I mean, Jeremiah, he loves the Jews. He's one of them. And then the prophet stays loyal to his people and identifies with them through thick and thin, good or bad. Like verse 8. Oh, the hope of Israel, his Savior in time of trouble. Why should you be like a stranger in the land and like a traveler who turns aside to tarry for the night. Here in a very bleak, dark time, Jeremiah gives us a wonderful name. 
for God. He's the hope of Israel. I, I like that. You know, he's our hope as well. You know, God is our Savior in time of trouble. Verse 9. Why should you be like a man astonished, like a mighty one who cannot save? Yet you, O Lord, are in our midst, and we are called by your name. Do not leave us. Thus is the Lord to this people. Thus they have loved to wander. They have not restrained their feet. Therefore the Lord does not accept them. He will remember their iniquity now and punish their sins. Then the Lord said to me, Do not pray for this people for their good. When they fast, I will not hear their cry. And when they offer burnt offerings and grain offerings, I will not accept them, but I will consume them by the sword, by the famine, and by the pestilence. After Jeremiah asked the Lord to help his people because they're, they're called by his name, notice the Lord doesn't say, okay, I'm going to send you some rain and, and I'll provide some food. I'm going to protect them from the Babylonians. No, the Lord says to Jeremiah, you know what? Don't pray for them. Don't pray for them. Now, God's judgment is not a sign of his giving up. It's a sign of his love and care. You see, in God, uh, forbidding Jeremiah to pray for the people of Judah, in essence, he was saying, if I send rain, then the people will continue in their idolatry. If I don't send the Babylonians, my people will keep making images and offering sacrifices to them, and they're going to be eternally lost as a result. In fact, not too many years after this prophecy was given, the people of Judah began to be carried away into captivity. It was a brutal time. In fact, the, the psalmist uh, tell us that the babies were beaten against the rocks, their heads were crushed, the people wept by the river, longing for Jerusalem. But man, when they came back, they were completely healed. Never again in their entire history would they fall into idolatry. Even today, the, the Jews abhor idols. They, they were healed completely, but, but it took severe judgment to do it. Lord goes on, look at verse 13. Then I said, Ah, Lord God, behold, the prophets say to them, You shall not see the sword, nor shall you have famine, but I will give you assured peace in this place. Now, we need to understand that Jeremiah was not the only man claiming to speak for God during this time. There's these false prophets preaching the exact opposite of Jeremiah's message. Jeremiah is saying, Judgment is coming. Repent. Humble yourselves. The false prophets are crying, Peace and safety. There'll be no famine. You're, gonna, you're not going to die by the sword. Now, who do you think the people are going to want to listen to? <laughs> the false prophets of Jeremiah. Of course, the false prophets crying peace and safety. I mean, they would look for the prophets that would tell them what they wanted to hear. Much in the same way that we see it today. People, they, they, they want to go to, to places because they have itching ears. The Bible talks about them. Looking for churches that their pastors will tell them what they want to hear instead of what they need to hear. And I'm sure there were moments of self-doubt with Jeremiah. I mean, I'm sure he would hear these, these, these prophets, these false prophets with all their propaganda. He might have wondered, well, have I messed up here, Lord? Have I crossed my wires? Have I heard you correctly? Who's right in all this? But I love, even if he thought that, the Lord comes to assure him, hey, you're okay. Look at verse 14. And the Lord said to me, the prophets prophesied lies in my name. I've not sent them, commanded them, nor spoken to them. They prophesied to you a false vision, divination, a worthless thing, and the deceit of their heart. Therefore, thus says the Lord, concerning the prophets who prophesied in my name, who I did not send, and who say, sword and famine shall not be in this land. By sword and famine, those prophets shall be consumed. Oh, man. I didn't say it. And they're saying it's not going to happen. Let me let you know it's going to happen. It's going to happen with them first. Verse 16. And the people to whom they prophesy shall be cast out in the streets of Jerusalem because of the famine and the sword. 
They will have no one to bury them, them nor their wives, their sons nor their daughters, for I will pour their wickedness on them. Therefore you shall say this word to them, Let my eyes flow with tears night and day, and let them not cease, for the virgin daughter of my people has been broken with a mighty stroke, with a very severe blow. This, this message is just breaking the heart of Jeremiah. He's weeping as he's given this message to his people. And God wanted the people to know that it's his heart was breaking. Jeremiah was not only given the message from God, but, but he's expressing his feelings of, of God as well. Listen, we need to realize that, that all of us are witnesses for God. If you're a child of God, you're a witness for God, and you're saying something by your life. So we need to be very careful when we speak the word of God that, that our lives conform to what, what we're saying. That we're just not out, out there giving out the word in a cold-hearted manner. There must be feeling. That if not, there's, there's something radically wrong with us. Jeremiah goes on with it, the broken heart, verse 18. If I go out to the field, then behold, those slain with a sword. And if I enter the city, then behold, those sick with famine. Yes, both prophet and priest go about in the land they do not know. But then he questions God in verse 19. Have you utterly rejected Judah as your soul loathed Zion? Why have you stricken us so that there is no healing for us? We looked for peace, but there was no good. And for the time of healing, and there was trouble. We acknowledge, O Lord, our wickedness and the iniquity of our fathers, for we have sinned against you. Do not abhor us for your namesake. Do not disgrace the throne of your glory. Remember, do not break your covenant with us. Jeremiah has forgotten that the curses were as much as part of God's covenant with Israel as were his blessings. In judging them, God is fulfilling promises just as much as if he blessed them. Now Jeremiah finishes up the chapter he began with, with talking about the drought. Look at verse 22. He says, Are there any among the idols of the nations that can cause rain? Or can the heavens give showers? Are you not he, O Lord our God? Therefore we will wait for you since you have made all these only God can bring the rain. And Jeremiah has asked now, all he's just going to wait for God to prove himself again. But God, but God answers Jeremiah in a surprising way. Not what he expected. Look at verse 1 of Jeremiah chapter 15. Then the Lord said to me, Even if Moses and Samuel stood before me, my mind would not be favorable towards his people. Cast them out of my sight and let them go forth. Wow. I mean, on numerous occasions, both men what went to bat for the people in prayer. God heard them and delivered them. Moses and Samuel were, were known in Jewish history as powerful intercessors. But here the Lord says, if they were suddenly appear before me, I would not answer their prayers. Their prayer would have no effect. Why? Because the nation was too far gone. Judah had pushed God too far. Their judgment was already determined. Prayer would not alter God's will. Verse 2, And it shall be if they say to you, Where should we go? Then you shall tell them, Thus says the Lord, such are for death to death, and such are for the sword to the sword, and such is for the famine to the famine, and such are the captivity to the captivity. Not a very comforting answer, is it? In other words, their fate's already been decided. They, they have nowhere to go but to receive the reward. Verse 3, And I will appoint over them four forms of destruction, says the Lord. The sword to slay, the dogs to drag, the birds of the heavens, and the beasts of the earth to devour and destroy. I will hand them over to trouble to all kingdoms of the earth because of Manasseh, the son of Hezekiah, king of Judah, for what he did in Jerusalem. I like that. Everyone's going to die in four ways. None of them are very appealing. The sword, the dogs, the birds, and the beast. Wait, what a way to go. But the Lord tells them why. In verse 4, he says, because of Manasseh, the son of Hezekiah, king of Judah, for what he did in Jerusalem. 
What did man Manasseh do? What was that they did in Jerusalem that was so bad? Listen to Second Kings twenty one nine. We're told that Manasseh seduced them to do more evil than the nations whom the Lord had destroyed before the children of Israel. Do you catch that? Manasseh brought more idolatry and worse idolatry into Israel than had there been under the Canaanites who God drove out of the land at the hands of the Hebrews. They were worse than them. Manasseh was involved in idolatry, the occult, witchcraft, astrology. He burned babies to Moloch. He set up uh, an idol to a fertility, fertility goddess in the temple. They were the worse than the heathen nations that God drove out. So if God didn't judge Judah on account of Manasseh's sin, then he would need to apologize to the Canaanites. At the time of Manasseh, God prophesied that he would wipe Judah clean like a man wipes a dirty plate. Manasseh reigned 52 years and thought, uh, and though he would repent later in his life, you know, the, the damage couldn't have been undone. We go on look at verse 5. For who will you have pity? For who will have pity on you, O Jerusalem? Or who will bemoan you? Or who will turn aside to ask how you are doing? You have forsaken me, says the Lord. You have gone backwards. Therefore, I will stretch out my hand against you and destroy you. I am weary of relenting. And I will winnow them with a winnowing fan in the gates of the land. I will bereave them of children. I will destroy my people. Since they do not return from their ways, their widows will be increased to me more than the sand of the seas. I will bring against them, against the mother of the young man, a plunder at noonday. I will cause anguish and terror to fall on them suddenly. She languishes who has borne seven. She has breathed her last. Her son has gone down while it was yet day. She has been ashamed and confounded. And the remnant of them I will deliver to the sword before their enemies, says the Lord. Seven was the number of perfection. So the seven children was a perfect family. This woman should have been content, but she languishes because of the judgment that's to come. Now, needless to say, if you're Jeremiah and you're saying all of this, you probably can get pretty discouraged message after message of the coming destruction. Verse 10, he says, Woe is me, my mother, that you have borne me, a man of strife and a man of contention to the whole earth. <laughs> Jeremiah's going, oh man, I wish I, I was never born. All he wanted to do was serve the Lord, yet, yet princes and prophets and even priests had fought him and persecuted him. Even people from his own hometown you know, wanted to, wanted to kill him. He goes on, he says, I have neither lent for interest nor have men lent to me for interest. Every one of them curses me. That's kind of funny what Jeremiah is thinking about right here. He says, I've got nothing to loan anybody if they need something from me. And, and no one will loan me anything if I needed something for them, you know. In fact, they just want to kill me. I've heard it said, before borrowing money from a friend, decide which one you need more, the money or the friend. Personal loans, they create tension. Yet Jeremiah again is saying, I haven't loaned them any or borrowed and not paid back. Yet still everyone despises me. I have, I have no friends. Everyone around me is my enemy. And he may have felt that way. But I love that the Lord is right there ready to encourage him. Look at verse 11. The Lord said, Surely it will be well with your remnant. Surely I will cause the enemy to intercede with you in the time of adversity and in a time of affliction. In other words, God is saying, Jeremiah, slow down, buddy. It's going to be okay. Don't worry about it. I'm going to take care of you. And he says a couple of things there. He says, first, God says, uh, he'll watch over the survivors of the invasion. It'll be well with your remnant. That means a remnant of these Jews will be taken into captivity. And secondly, God will see to it that the Babylonians are kind and caring in their personal treatment of Jeremiah. I'll cause the enemy to intercede with you. So don't worry about it. 
You know, you're my servant. I'm going to take care of you. Now, on a side note, the Jews that were taken into captivity in the Babylon actually prospered quite well in Babylon. You know, they were basically farmers, but when they got into business, they were fantastic. And soon they were running the best operations in all of Babylon. They, they were becoming very wealthy businessmen. So that when, able, when they were able actually to go back to Jerusalem to leave Babylon, they were so prosperous they didn't want to go back. Why should we go back to that hard life in Jerusalem? We got it so good here. A lot of them didn't return because they became so prosperous. But Lord, he's here. He's just trying to encourage Jeremiah. He goes on in verse 12. Can anyone break iron, the northern iron and the bronze? Your wealth and your treasures I will give as a plunder without price because of all your sins throughout your territories. And I will make you cross over with your enemies into the land which you do not know. For a fire is kindled in my anger which shall burn upon you. Again, this is the Lord just predicting the Babylonian captivity. Jeremiah responds, verse 15, O Lord, you know, remember me and visit me and take vengeance for me on my persecutors and your enduring patience. Do not take me away. Know that for your sake I have suffered rebuke. Not all of Jeremiah's concern was for the people. I mean, he's concerned about himself here, his his own predicament. He didn't want to be taken into captivity. And he's hoping God is going to spare him on account of his faithfulness. And he asks, his Lord, take vengeance on my enemies, but show mercy towards me. Isn't that how we are? <laughs> oh, Lord, judge them. Lord, but I, need, I need mercy and grace here. Verse 16. Your words were found, and I ate them. And your word was to me the joy and rejoicing in my heart, for I am called by your name, O Lord God of hosts. I love this. Here it is. It's one of those storm clouds separating, the sun shining through, verses found in Jeremiah. Your words were found and I ate them. Your word to me is a joy and rejoicing of my heart. Can you say that of God's word? Folks, we are so blessed to to have the word of God. To enjoy the beauty of finding truth in His Word that just ministered to our souls and our spirits. Just to get into God's Word and to study it and devour it and apply it. Here Jeremiah is saying, I found your Word and I devoured it and it was the joy and the rejoicing of my heart. And he's recalling the moment some 20 years after Manasseh's death that, that a copy of the Scriptures were rediscovered there in the temple. It was found by the high priest Hakai, who may have been Jeremiah's dad. So Jeremiah got to read it from then on. And Jeremiah, he studied it and he took it in. He digested every word. He chewed on it, molded over it. He devoured it. The Bible became his, his bread. God's truth fed his soul. Yet Jeremiah not only read God's word, but he put it into practice. He became not only a hearer of God's word, but a doer of God's word. It's been said God never intended that we should merely get into God's word. His intent is that the word should get into us. Jeremiah followed God's word, even though it alienated him from others and made his way more difficult. And that'll happen to you. That happens to me. We follow God's word. We, we do what God's word said. And there's going to be people that are going to go, you know what? I just don't want to hang out with you anymore. We don't have a whole lot in common. And there's some separations that take place. In fact, verse 17, Jeremiah says, I did not sit in the assembly of the mockers, nor did I rejoice. I sat alone because of your hand. For you filled me with indignation. Why is my pain perpetual and my wound incurable, which refuses to be healed? Will you surely be to me like an unreliable stream as waters that fell? And seeking to serve the Lord, Jeremiah's ministry hadn't turned out the way he expected it, I don't think. Didn't turn out the way he hoped for it. 
pain, hurt, wounds wasn't what he thought his ministry would be all about. It wasn't what Jeremiah expected. And I, and I can relate to that. You know, when, when you get into ministry and you think it's going to be this way, it's going to be that way, you know, and, and you make these assumptions off of the expectations. I remember I'm thinking I'm going to pass. Well, everybody's going to like me. I'm going to come to pastor in Springfield and, and they're all going to just like me. And after the first year I'm going, I can't believe people don't like me. You have these, these expectations. Jeremiah made assumptions that they were not of God and his disappointment wasn't because God failed him but because Jeremiah had faulty expectations. And so he's just sharing his heart, and he kind of is accusing God of not caring. Let me take some liberty in what I think Jeremiah is saying here. He's saying, God, I was righteous among the wicked. I walked the narrow path. I adopted your attitude of indignation against sin. I followed your word. And what did you do, God? You, you wounded me, or you certainly let me be wounded, and now you won't take away my pain even though you could. You want to say, come on, Jeremiah, pull yourself together. Slap him a couple times. Jeremiah, wake up. And yet if we're honest, maybe you and I have had to say the same thing. You know, the truth is the world is full of moments when we ask God, why? Why us? Why did this happen this way? Why is this going on that way? Jeremiah calls God an unreliable stream. But remember, Jesus promised that he would be to us a continual source of living water. Jesus promised that he would never leave us, never forsake us. Jesus promised to give us life and that more abundantly. So instead of blaming God for being an unreliable stream, we need to trust that he's always reliable. Jeremiah should have gone back to God's word during his time of doubt and realized that God was there for him and us and he'll see us through whatever trial we face. See, my will is not always his will. My plans and my time don't always sync with His plans and time, but we need to always remember that, that God is sovereign and He wants us to, to, to the absolute best thing for our lives. We may not understand it. We may not to expect it. But, but God works in our lives. He re, he's a reliable stream of living water as we trust Him. So the Lord responds to Jeremiah's heartache. He says in verse 19, Therefore, thus says the Lord, If you return, then I will bring you back. You shall stand before me if you take out the precious from the vial, you shall be as my mouth. Let them return to you, but you must not return to them. I think God's response probably shocked Jeremiah. Jeremiah complains, God, you're not there for me. God says, Jeremiah, you need to return to me. God tells Jeremiah, hey, buddy, you're the one that's moved away. You need to return. It's like praying, God, where are you? And God replying, I'm right where I've always been. Where are you? It's like the old saying, if you feel distance to God, he's not the one who has moved. You have. If you feel that God has abandoned you, that is when you really need to draw close to the Lord and His Word, and you'll find that He's been there all along. You're the one who's left. Here the Lord tells Jeremiah, if you return there, I will bring, bring you back. Verse 20 says, And I will make you to this people a fortified bronze wall, and they will fight against you, but they shall not prevail against you. For I am with you to save you and deliver you, says the Lord. I will deliver you from the hand of the wicked, and I will redeem you from the grip of the terrible. God will build up Jeremiah, God will fortify his faith. A city surrounded by fortified bronze walls would be invincible. Walls made of brass would be too strong to ram, too heat resistant to burn, too slick to climb. God is saying, man, I'm doing this work in you. God has corrected and strengthened Jeremiah, and here he recommissions him and promises him deliverance. As we close tonight, maybe you're feeling a little like Jeremiah. Know that God is here, that he promises to strengthen us, as long as we keep our eyes on Him, dig in His Word, 
devour it. Isaiah 41.10 says, Fear not, for I am with you. Be not dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. Yes, I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this opportunity we've had tonight, Lord, uh, just to study your word. Oh, Lord, that, that we may devour your word, that it may be the joy and the rejoicing of our hearts, Lord. Make us, Lord, men of, and women of prayer. Lord, help us to encourage one another, to lift others up. Lord, help us to warn those that of the destruction that's coming to this earth, Lord. We know your judgment is coming. Help us, those that have the truth, those that know the truth, to share the truth, to be your instruments, to speak your truth. We thank you for your love, your grace, this opportunity, Lord, to be ministered to you through your spirit, through your word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So I'll stand and we'll do one last song together.